0: moment. All right, for the record, this is the April fifteenth, 2021 Treasure Island Development Authority Sustainability Committee meeting. Due to the COVID-19 health emergency board members are participating in this meeting remotely via video conference, and they are participating in the same extent as if they were physically present. Public comment will be available for each item on the agenda. For members of the public who wish to make public comment, the phone number to use is 415-655-0001, the access code is 187-659-2091, then press pound and press pound again. When your item of interest is called, dial star three to be added to the queue to speak. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. You may address the board once per agenda item for up to two minutes. Item number one, call to order. Director Kwan? Here. Director Sen? Director Sen? You might be on mute. I see you. Here. Thank you. And Director Richardson? I'm here. Thank you. We do have a quorum.
1: Okay, excellent. Um, so, sorry, i sorry, can you remind me? Do we start with general public comment? Yes. Okay. Item there's... number
0: two general public comment. And it appears we have no callers on the line for public comment.
1: Okay, thank you. Uh, let's go to our next item then, please.
0: Item number three consent agenda 3A approving the minutes of the January 21st, 2021 meeting. I move. Um, okay, I second. Okay. I'll call, make a roll call vote. Director Kwan. Yes. Director Sen. Yes. Director Richardson. Yes. There are three eyes.
1: All right, eyes have it. Do we need any discussion?
0: Yeah.
1: No. Okay. No. All right, next item, please.
0: Item number four, Treasure Island Sea Level Rise Design and Adaption Strategies.
1: So we have a special guest today to do a presentation, which I am very excited about. Um, so uh, we'd love to hear more from our, our guest. If you do, uh, would do a, a brief introduction, please. And uh, the floor is yours. Thank you for being here today.
2: Am, am I good to go or you want to have, okay. Hi, Dilip Trivedi. Um, I'm a coastal engineer with a firm Moffat & Nickel. Um, I have been involved with the Treasure Island project um, I'd say now for about 14 years uh, since the transfer of property was being um, culminated right from that time itself and we had over the period of time worked prior to much of the guidance documents that we currently see from BCDC and the state and others. Much of the work was done in advance of uh, those studies being published. And so we uh, took a precautionary um, principle, you know, basically approach. And so here, let me share my screen, and I have a few slides here um, that I'd like to share with you. Um, if you can I'll see my presentation, hopefully. Yes, did it come up? Yes, we can see it. Thank you. Perfect. Yeah, I just wanted confirmation. Sometimes with these screen share things, uh, you know, it's a little difficult. So uh, an adaptation strategy is what we are calling it. Um, and so going through the presentation here, you know, I'll, I'll cycle through, you know, three primary points, you know, what caught the genesis of this work, um, the sea uh, level rise, how sea level rise Um, is different compared to some of the other criteria that we use in engineering such as seismic and um, civil roadways and building designs and wind and other kind of things Uh, what was the design basis for the master project itself and and, and the adaptation strategy in case that observed sea levels exceed whatever the uh, numbers projected estimates have been so at the time of the CEQA document itself, and going through a lot of the community meetings, the cab meetings, the citizens, uh, you know, stakeholder meetings, the issue about two there were two issues kept coming up, which are the subject of today's presentation. One was the low elevations of the island, and the other one was the nature of the soils themselves, uh, liquefaction, and all of those other things. So this was just as an example. At the time, FEMA was remapping all of uh, Basically, this was all post-Katrina work, post-Katrina and Rita work. But FEMA had embarked upon remapping and doing a digital map map modernization where they incorporated whatever sea level rise had already occurred since the time they did the last FEMA maps. And these are just examples of the vulnerability of San Francisco Bay to different phenomena. uh, Open seas, which are our winds, Uh, Surges, which is primarily the uh, wave action that comes through the Golden Gate. This is the offshore Pacific swell. Um, And then just uh, uh, normal meteorological surges, these low-pressure anomalies that we get, which results in a super-elevation of tides, and we see tides a foot, two feet higher than what the predicted tides are, which we call surge. Uh, and then BCDC was the other agency which really um, was shining the light on the vulnerability of much of San Francisco Bay's dike baylands and urban communities. And so these were maps that they had put out um, after we had already gone through the first round of um, planning for Treasure Island. But these were maps that showed what would happen with 16 inches, which were a, which was a number that was, uh, the best available science indicated by 2050. So mid-century levels were projected to be 16 inches, and by the end of the century, they were projected to be about 55 inches. Coming to Treasure Island, um, you know, this is just a very rough, uh, you know, it's, it's not the best graphic image, but the reason we, are show, we showed it like this, this is what the condition that was delivered from, you know, by the Navy itself to Dida and um, the contours there indicate um, the magenta one is the one of significance. And when I say significance, that magenta 10 elevation is about today's 100-year tide elevation or what FEMA calls base flood elevation. So it's the extent of flooding, if a 100-year tide such as 1983 were to occur, Uh, prior to the development. So all of the northwest portion of the island would be flooded and a small little uh, tongue at the southeast corner there. Most of the island, the other portions, were elevated higher than the 100-year tide. The the yellows are a foot higher, greens are two feet higher, and there's very few whites in there. But in general, you know, they were about a foot to two feet above 100-year tides. And so that resulted in... When we started looking at the the plan, the proposed program, there were two choices that were being considered, at least by planners. You know, the the, the intuitive thinking was, oh, we're going to have to build a levee around Treasure Island and protect it, very much like Foster City or Redwood City or uh, portions in the delta. And through our thinking um, and working with the development team, you know, because an extremely progressive group of people in the sense that you know, they did not want to build a project that would have taken 20 years of planning and design and construction and build at the end a levy protected community since we saw what happened with Katrina and, uh, and others and since then with Sandy and others. So the, um, the decision was made and a commitment was made that all of the pads that you see the development parcels are going to be elevated not only out of the hundred year floodplain, but the hundred year floodplain that will occur a good amount of time in the future. That's where our science and, and and the technical analysis then ended up, you know, focusing on what is that number that we should be designing for at a minimum. Um, and so the next few slides um, you know, I'm showing how codes do not exist for sea level rise. Right now, the only I would say the informal code, you know, is BCDC's guidance, which is a big plan, um, and it it's it's gone on into being a CEQA requirement. Um, but in many many um, ways, we would say that the science is still maturing because the numbers that we have now. Uh, still have not been updated over the past 21 years, right? So all the sea-level rise estimates that we are even today seeing in the newspapers or in NOAA publications and USGS use data, title data, up to the year 2000, and they haven't been updated. So are we tracking low, medium, high? We don't know. We probably know next year when NOAA comes back and updates all of its title projections. So it's still maturing. Uh, the guidance proposed at that time in 2008, when we were planning, you know, was not enough to, to to support you know a code, you know, like a building agency or a FEMA map would be, which is you have to be above BFE. Period. Uh, these are examples of what we would use, you know, for other uh, forcing phenomena such as winds and waves. Here, in this instance, I'm using seismic. Uh, you know, this is how we would typically design. A structure, um, and then based on its vulnerability and the severity or the consequence of um, the problem, you know, let's look at a marine oil terminal where the risk is, 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 uh, you know, I would say the consequence of having a failure is significant, and so there's very low bar uh, for you know risk tolerance. And the numbers that you see down there are probability numbers, which we as engineers use in almost all of our analysis. That, you know, just pick one number here which is four hundred and seventy-five year return period. Well, what does that really mean? It means there's a risk of 10% in 50 years. And so we are designing to an earthquake shaking that would have a probability of 10% of occurrence over the next 50 years. So these are all well codified. We don't have that for sea level rise, and so these are, this is this is the spread of information that and all the estimates that existed at the time. Um, everything from what the IPCC, uh, the global bodies, the NRC, the National, Re- the National Research Council, which the U.S. Um, you know uh, asked, to develop estimates for the West Coast, and you can see the range, especially you know out in the out years at the end of the century. The 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 historic range of eight inches to a a projected estimate which nrc has given of 66 inches that's that 66 inches number that we were seeing so in this how do we as planners make a decision about what levels of sea level rise to to put into um, you know the plans itself first thing was as social engineers who have worked both in you know in the gulf and the east coast and the west coast there's a big difference in the way our storms and our properties are subject to uh, flooding you know that's a problem east coast and gulf have hurricanes they have very large variations in sea levels which we don't have our issue here almost always has been tides waves and surges you know the small surges that we get so we walk through this uh, we explained you know what is a typical shoreline at uh, around Treasure Island? What does it look like? You know here's an embankment. This is a typical one to scale where the elevation of the rock that you see around Treasure Island is about 12 to 14 feet elevation. This is the datum that is used standard. It's called NAVD. Um, roughly matches the same as above the low tides. So this is 12 to 14 feet above low tide. This is where the tide is, 0 to 6 feet. And so theoretically, someone could say, well, you have high tide, high tide of 6, and you're at 12, no problem. Well, no, you have storm surges, you have tsunamis, you have uh, swell wave energy that elevate that to about an elevation of 9.1. This is what the FEMA number was at the time when we started doing this. Above that, there is the potential for wave energy to come in from the Golden Gate, uh, especially at the northwest corner. And so you could have a wave run up that starts going. And what we what we see at that point is that there's very little freeboard now left beyond the wave run-up itself. So there was no allowance for sea level rise included you know, in the existing elevations. That's where we started our thinking. You know, choices could be build a levee. Um, you know, other communities have adopted to just move higher, you know, in place itself, abandoned First floor elevations, move up to the second floor. Works for older communities. Um, um, we could create buffers. And so that is number four there, create other buffers and using adaptation strategy along with an initial high capital investment to raise properties was the uh, method that was deployed. You know, we went through again, you know, what are our consequences, what are our risks. Uh, What would happen in the open space, there was a very clear difference that if an open space such as City Waterfront Park were to see a few inches of water 50 years from today in a 100-year tide, it may be something that is acceptable because it is still an open space and we would be okay. But we cannot afford to have our streets and our pads and parking lots be um, subject to flooding. So those were the thought processes that we followed. We did all the modeling, the analysis, and in the end, this is the summary of how we arrived at, you know, which has been a well-established fact now of Treasure Island using three feet over 70 years. Well, this is the basis of how we selected that. Um, 70 years was picked as a time by the, uh, by the partners, by the development team and with TIDA, that, um, you know, that 70 years is a good period of time over which there really should not be major uh, improvements that should be needed for a project. Beyond 70 years, it may be time to do perhaps some uh, improvements uh, to the assets that exist there. At that time, let's look at the highest number that existed, which happened to be um, you know, three feet in the year 2017. That three feet became basically the driving factor of fortress Island. Yet we wanted to ensure that beyond 20, you know, beyond 27, 70 years from construction is not the end of the community. Well, what happens after that? You know, what's it at the end of the century? Well, that would have been, you know, about two feet higher. What can we do about that sea level rise? That's where all the thinking went in with the adaptation strategy for the proposed project, as you see it. You know, the um, the 300-foot setback from uh, you know the east shoreline, um, the west, the west shoreline. Sorry, um, ensuring that there's no other improvements other than the historic buildings that needed to be preserved, and the open spaces all around. So that became uh, the design criteria. That this is what the initial construction, this is existing grades as you see it along the perimeter, at the time of um, development, which is already what has happened on Phase One A and Phase One B, the perimeter has been raised. That uh, rise or, ray or the, the ele- super elevation of the rocks that you see out there, and the difference between what has been done and what you see here is that this was of the, the promenade was also elevated. So the entire 300 feet setback that you see can now accommodate three feet of sea level rise beyond today or beyond, uh, you know, the 100-year types today without any improvements needed. In the future, beyond um, three feet of sea level rise, what could be done, so these were potential options that we laid out, hosted um, for different areas of the shoreline, that was for the western shoreline facing San Francisco. This is for the northern shoreline, where the Great Park uh, is proposed. Where there's uh, a mix of um, urban and um, more natural habitat that could be uh, utilized. We start out with what exists that you've seen here. This is what is being constructed as part of Phase Two. When we get to that portion, the northwest portion itself. Um, The options beyond 36 inches, the community would want to decide and definitely have a say 70 years from today, what should be done. We gave them options. You could, you know, set back the urban edge and the paths. You could have this space that would be more subject to storm-related overtopping. Those could be... Um, uh, leveraged for wetlands and for habitats and open spaces like that. It, fortunately, the space existed there, so we could do that. The other options that we also provided were uh, removing the levees, right? So, at portions of the island, the levees could be taken down because when you take down a steep slope and rocks and replace it with a shallow slope, the wave action is completely absorbed by the, the flattening of the slope itself. So cobble beach would very much be possible. Marsh edges would very much be possible. And so the this is my I think my final slide here that that the overall strategy for the sustainability portion you know just for the sea level rise was elevate the development area which buys us time buys us in this case, 70 years, at a minimum, using the most conservative numbers, Um, ensure that there's a wide setback area, that if numbers exceed what has been projected or for planning horizons beyond 70 years, you can do things out there. And then the most important part, who's going to pay for all this? And so there was uh, a project-generated funding mechanism that was put into place which uh hopefully in the next uh presentation can also talk about you know bob can about the cfds and you know we we talked about gags we talked about CFDs, all kinds of you know financing mechanisms so that has all been established it's in the dda um and as a result of that there's plenty of options that the community can use. There's money in place. There's options. There's space, uh, and there's time. And so that was, uh, you know, a summary of how, um, you know, even at the time before a lot of the new guidance numbers and estimates that you are seeing, um, you know, we, we could still very comfortably. Say that that strategy was um, conservative enough that even with the new numbers of sea level rise that are coming out, the project's design basis is very much solid. It's in solid footing. And so I'll stop sharing my screen. Uh, open it up to questions either now or if you want to listen to both uh, presentations and then have questions, it's entirely up to you.
1: Uh, Mr. Treveni, thank you so much for the presentation. Um, I have a, I have a couple of questions, but I want to open it up uh, to uh, my fellow commissioners first if they have any questions.
3: Yes. Can I? Oh, please, yes. Linda, go ahead. Okay. So can I, can you hear me?
1: Uh, yes. Yes. Please go ahead.
3: Okay. Yes. Anyway, uh, good afternoon, uh, Mr. Dillard. This is Alina Fedeke Richardson, and I had the honor, actually, of um, working with you on the Port of San Francisco waterfront uh, planning uh, years ago. And I'm glad that you're here uh, today. Um, Unfortunately, you cannot see me, but I'm taking notes. I think the timing of your presence here today um, at the beginning of the sustainability uh, committee uh, is actually very crucial. Uh, There has been a lot of uh, conversations along San Francisco, and I guess our commission has not done a great job in actually uh, letting the public know about how the process and the years and years and years of uh, deliberations uh, before uh, the the planning of the Treasure Island and the Java Buena Island um, development. And you mentioned in your presentation And again, I'm repeating that, that prior to the establishment approval of the plan, there was an extensive adaptability study, and then it was recommended, and again, for the elevation of um, development in some of the areas. So my question on what you have seen so far, is TIDA actually following the process that the engineering group and your group you know um have suggested are we in line with that and I asked the question i know we are but I think the public should hear from you your assessment as to how all these developments are going thank you yeah. bob you want, you
2: want me to take that do
4: you want to go first thank you I I was planning to cover some of that uh, in the geotech portion, but uh, whatever whatever the pleasure of the of the board is.
5: Sure. Um,
2: yeah, those those numbers were written into the permits, so there's very little room that we have to deviate from the strategy. The strategy became the basis for BCDC to establish a plan climate change addendum that occurred in 2011. The numbers and the strategy that was deployed for Treasure Island um, and working a lot during those days with Will Travis and um, his staff, um, you know, they liked the idea and the the approach and the direction that Treasure Island took and they fortified it and put it into the BCDC Bay plan that became the basis. I think TI was the very first project that was approved after the 2011 uh, guidance was issued. So whatever we showed you in terms of the numbers, the options, the uh, CFD, the commitment for the project generated funding were all written into the permit. And so at this time, the numbers that I have shown became the minimum numbers. And what is happening is on phase 2A, as we are expanding phase 1, we're actually exceeding the standards that we had shown and even explained in the permit itself. So, yes, the answer to your question is, um, you know, it definitely is being followed, the uh, individual phases that are being developed and the grading plans, uh, have all been approved using these numbers itself, a way we can deviate from that.
3: Thank you very much, sir.
2: Okay.
6: Um, I'd like to ask questions as well. Ike? Sure, I, sure. Yes. Um, yes. Thank you so much for that presentation. We have been waiting, um, for this presentation and there's so much, uh, factual information, which I really appreciate. Um, And I um, understand that the numbers that you had in 2008, you know, three feet at that time seemed like a lot. It was really um, a time when we did not anticipate the sea level rise that we are actually seeing today. Um, and I think that the plan that we came up with or um, or you came up with, because I was not there at the time, came up um for TIDA, the master plan, was really very smart in that you did have the setback um from the edge uh, for development. The development was on higher grounds. You you have a wild area wet wetlands which could indeed you know um be um, inundated, but that would not affect the streets and the development. My question to you um, is: Given the consequences of climate change and what we know now, is three feet adequate? You know, is and and the plan that we have for Treasure Island protect us if the sea level rise eventually is more than three feet? What if now nowadays people are talking about five feet? Yeah. a yeah. standard of sorts. And um and if it is five feet as an example, um, the vast plan that we have, the developments that we um are planning, are they are they going to be able to um be protected?
2: the one one response i could i could have to that is at the time when all of the science even had come up with you know three feet and 55 inches and 69 inches there weren't any numerical estimates of probability or certainty assigned to any of those numbers those became model based these are global ocean circulation model based estimates with no validation as to the actual risk what happened in 2018 with opc after the state took on the the resiliency portion as you know one of our fundamental objectives was to have the best available science and bring in a new body which was the ocean protection council and they updated even these numbers that the NRC had put together and came up with guidance. but the, the, the good part about the guidance, shared one of the pages from that was they assigned numbers. And so now for the, for the very first time, what we had were what is the actual probability of a number four feet or four feet or five feet? And if we look at, this is the projected sea level rise for San Francisco from the 2018 guidance, and they look at the low emissions and the high emissions scenario. As a Bay Area community, we are not even looking at the low emissions scenarios, even though things seem to be trending away from the high emissions. But again, using precautionary principles, high emissions, and they assign these probabilities, right? So when you look at, let's pick a number, 5% probability that sea level rise could exceed this number. So in other words, there's a 95% chance that the sea level rise in the year 2050 will not exceed 1.4 feet. There's a 90% chance that in the year of 2080 or 2070, so that became our planning number, right? 2070 was what we were using as a timeline over which we did not want to make any additional improvements that number which matches a 95% probability that the sea level rise is going to be below is 2.4 feet. Now recall we are at three for the perimeter and three and a half feet for the buildings. The year 2100, even when you look at, um, let me scroll down here 2100 there's a 95 percent chance in 2100 that the sea level rise is going to be below 4.4 feet mm-hmm. and These are 2018
6: numbers is this the yeah. guidance from the
2: yes. protection yes. yeah this is the state of uh, california the 2018 numbers um 95 percent chance. Um, If we start looking at at the half percent probability again, you know, if this were a school, a civic, um, uh, uh, civic uh, structure, you know, let's look at a city hall, for example, or things like that. BCDC and scientists have been saying, well, maybe 95 percent is not enough. Let's look at 99.5 percent. So then we start looking at this column right here. And again, if you look at 3.5 feet, the guidance shows that there's a 99.5% probability that the sea level rise projection in the year 2070, 50 years from now, is going to be below 3.5. Feet. Yeah. And so, this- that sort of, so that sort of validated, you know, the initial capital investment that was going into Treasure Island. Uh, again. You know, it's also true. Someone could make an argument that this H plus plus scenario could also play out, and we could have five feet. And by year 2100, we would have 10 feet of sea level rise. Can the project accommodate 10 feet? You know, sure. And I think that's what white setbacks and tracking, right? So that's what BCDC permit imposed upon the project. That every five years, the applicant has to come back to us and tell us how much sea level rise actually has occurred. We are preparing our first five-year plan, and it turns out that sea level rise has not occurred even to the low projection estimates. It's right. practically historic. Yeah. So, even our- it, gives, so- <laughs> it
6: gives us some comfort. Then. And, but I do think that the master plan was very well designed. And for that reason, I think we did receive some um, accolades for both from BCDC as well as from other organizations. So thank you.
1: Uh, Mr. Trivedi, if I can ask a question. It's your third to last slide. Could you pull that up, please? I think it was your third to last that showed uh, the the concrete barrier versus sort of the receded um, gradual slope. Yes.
2: Bring that up. Um, Was it this one or this one? Uh,
1: Yeah, either either is fine. Um, And so a couple of questions. So um, I don't know if you've been to the Chicago lakefront, which is different. It's a It's a freshwater lake that's inland, obviously not exposed to the same conditions, Um, but uh, a couple decades ago, they put in an existing grade that's flat with the concrete blocks to to break the tide. And a friend of mine there with the city who's who's an engineer, that was a call in Chicago. Um, The the maintenance of, you know, what you have here is the existing grade was higher uh, and Later on in the south on the south side of Chicago, in the southern part of Lake Shore Drive, they did more of your cobble beach model, uh, which uh had a, a lot of benefits in terms of uh leisure and recreation, but also uh it was able to preliminarily, I think, absorb uh the the waves there. Now, so I know this is a different animal. Um right. can you just tell me a little bit more about um so let's say let's say money was an issue. Let's say Bob Beck got his dream scenario. Um you know what would be the ideal for the residents 70 years or 100 years from now between these two? What what are the big trade-offs?
2: Um, it's property, right? And so if you retreat and you flatten the shorelines, the more you flatten, the more options you have to put introduce less structures and go more nature-based. So we're showing cobbles. We're showing uh, sand, sandy beaches. I mean, you know, if I were to look at the exposure off the Treasure Island shoreline to wind waves and chalk within central San Francisco Bay, compare it to exposure out at the open ocean at Port Funston or at the zoo, for example. We know there's a big difference. We see 25 foot, 30 foot waves out in the ocean, yet you do not see, you know, rock, revetment cubes because there's a beach and so the sandy beach which is at a slope of 20 to one right our uh, navy created revetment is at a slope of about two two horizontal to one vertical that's the slope ocean beaches are 20 horizontal to one vertical marshes typical pickleweed you know marshes are about 90 horizontal So the flatter you go, same exploiter, the materials change dramatically. So again, so is it possible to do this? Yes, it comes at, you know, space, right? So that is the reason for a 300 feet setback. Maybe there is a happy medium in between where a slope of about, you know, five to one can be accommodated and all of the rock can be reutilized and just laid back The elevation of the perimeter does not need to go as high and look like this. We could leave the elevation to be exactly the same or even lower by just flattening the shoreline because it takes care of the waves because like I showed you, it's not the tides that are the problem at Treasure Island. The tides are here. It's this. Thing above the tides, right? It's the wave runoff and all of the tsunamis so, and the surge that can be accommodated by flattening the shoreline. It doesn't do anything to the tides. But when the tides, even with six feet of sea level rise, right? Let's look at six feet of sea level rise, which is end of century. The high tides would go from six to plus 12. So tidal flooding would not occur, storm flooding would occur.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, that makes sense. And, and if I were to,
1: to to wear the same hat as my uh, science colleagues at work, that um, they'd also say that uh, having uh, less concrete, less structure would also be a boon for biodiversity, um, just for that that ecosystem itself. Um, so if uh, Treasure Island and Bob wins the the mega lotto, um, <laughs> more green infrastructure items. So thank you very much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. It's very insightful.
2: Welcome.
1: Uh, are, are there any other comments or questions from uh, this body? Yes. Please. Can I go? Please.
3: Yes. Miss, Mr. Turbedi, I know that it is an irony that um, comparing some, uh, Treasure Island with, I know that we know that you've studied not only Treasure Island, but San Francisco in general. Yeah. But what would you say to? people that are maybe listening now of how safe a uh, Treasure Island is because I heard, I read in one of the uh, data uh, presented a while back that actually you're better off on Treasure Island than San Francisco and Bacadero. So anyway, from your assessment and again to uh, let people know, so we are exceeding um, actually all the recommendations. That's great. But how will you rate Treasure Island compared to the rest of San Francisco, who, you know, itself also have high probability of sea level rise? What how will you assess the risk of Treasure Island compared to uh, mainland San Francisco?
2: I'll say that Treasure Island will 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 be the model for a lot of the resiliency studies and plans that are going on, not just in the Bay Area, but beyond. Um, fortunately, you know, there is, you know, they're not comparable because one is a 150 old city and and shoreline that has been established, you know, middle of the 19th century. We are creating a shoreline that we probably want to ensure is going to be good for the next hundred and fifty years. So, yes, it's going to be significantly higher. Uh, in the next 20 years, there's going to be large amounts of flooding at a 100-year tide. Treasure Island will be a, a, a place where, you know, you might see a lot of emergency services and others starting to go there and establish themselves or going up into the hills.
3: Yes, sir. Great.
1: thank you. Any other questions or comments here? Okay, Mr. Trudy, thank you um, for your, all your work and your long view, and uh, thank you for educating us on on this project yourself. And we certainly hope to be interacting with you a lot more as, as we move ahead. Thank you very much. you welcome. Thank you. Uh, Kate, do we have to take public comment on this or questions?
0: We do. Yes, and we have two callers in the queue, so I will open the line.
7: Okay. Uh. Hello, uh, commissioners and staff. This is Eric Brooks with the local grassroots group, our city, uh, Commissioner Kwan, It's uh, good to see you, even though you can't see me.
1: Good to hear your voice, uh, Eric. And... Say again? Good to hear your voice.
7: Yep, so uh, I don't know how many minutes I've got, but I've got a lot to cover. So the the key thing that I'm not hearing discussed almost at all is, is toxic and radioactive waste which has recently been discovered to be surprisingly worse. And we've had cleanup scandals that have recently arisen around the cleanup uh, contractors that worked on Treasure Island and Bayview Hunters Point. Uh, And the, you know, you can talk about your projections for sea level rise and how high you need to build things, which by the way, you actually need to build to 60 feet, not 20. Uh, but that doesn't account for the fact that after just a couple of feet of sea level rise, water starts mixing with the toxic and radioactive chemicals that are under the the island and in the groundwater and will spread those chemicals around. Then if you add an earthquake and liquefaction to that, and then if before that or later you have a tsunami from an earthquake in Alaska, you will have a Katrina-like disaster in this area in tre- on Treasure Island uh, and in the Bayview-Hunters Point. Uh, so your projections of sea level rise are need to completely be reorganized dramatically to introduce this concept that what do you do about the toxic and radioactive chemicals, especially in light of the fact that we're seeing that they're not properly cleaned up yet. And if you look at the recent hearing on February 8th, that was held at the Board of Supervisors Land Use Committee on Treasure Island's contamination problem, you'll see that even the State Department of Public Health has admitted there have been problems with the cleanup records. So uh, there. until we get a real scope on that, then this plan is not adequate. As to your actual uh, rise projections.
0: Thank you and, for your and, comment. The two minutes is up.
8: And we'll move on to the next caller. Hello, Good afternoon. My name is Bradley Angel, and I am the Executive Director of Green Action for Health and Environmental Justice. And thank you first of all for um, in discussing this important issue. I really, really appreciate it, and it's very timely. Um, and so just since I just have a short time, I just want to flag a couple of things. You know, yes, it's good there's talk about a setback and how to protect a promenade or a building, but how about protecting public health and the environment? As you know, there is radioactive and toxic waste, not just present at the island, some being removed, but some being capped by the waterfront. This is a train wreck of a disaster. By failing to address, and this was, I didn't hear this in the presentation. You know, I heard buildings, I heard promenades, How about the radioactive and toxic waste that our government thinks it's okay to leave capped by the waterfront? Capping will not protect the sites, so you can set back everything else, but unless this radioactive and toxic waste is properly tested, removed completely, it's a disaster for Treasure Island and all of San Francisco Bay. Lastly, I just want to say real quick the sea level rise projections that were being discussed are wrong. I refer you to the May 5th, 2020 California Coastal Commission and uh, documents that um, say, quote unquote, the California coast faces a significant risk of experiencing sea level rise of up to 7.6 feet, not one foot, not three feet. 7.6 feet by 2100. you got a problem. We all got a problem on hands, on you, personally? And I'm, again, I appreciate you discussing this today. But um, I would like to hear, and I know the public, not just on Treasure Island, not just in San Francisco, but the millions of people around San Francisco Bay want to know what are you going to do to prevent sea level rise from gobbling up radioactive and toxic waste. Capping will not protect anyone. Thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you. And there's no more public comment.
1: Okay, thank you. We thank the the callers for uh, voicing their concerns. Uh, Thank you. Um, Are we ready to move on to the next item. Yes.
0: Yes, item number five, treasure island geotechnical program.
1: Okay.
4: Gary, sharing your screen? Yes. All right. Can everyone see this?
5: Not quite yet. yet. Give it a moment.
8: Okay,
3: there, there you are. Okay, yes. Okay, great. It's just,
4: sorry, it just takes a minute. So good afternoon, uh, members of the committee. Uh, my name is Ori Eliahu. I'm with NGO Incorporated. And we have been the geotechnical engineer on this project for a long, long time. I think we first started studying it in 2003. And what we are uh, looking to present today sort of an update on the geotechnical program. We'll start with a little bit of history, but then we'll move on to sort of what the implementation has been of the plan that was many years in the making as to how to stabilize this island and make it suitable to support the proposed development and of course assure the life safety of all the occupants. Okay, so a bit of brief history. Uh, Treasure Island was built by pumping sand, sand that was around the bay, and we'll get into into the source of that sand, um, off of the bay floor and placing it in this shape on the island. Now, where did that sand come from? This is sort of the proposed development. But I thought it was a good exhibit to show that uh, that sand that was laying there, that shoal that had been there before the island was built, uh, was really the result of a natural geomorphic process of the erosion that was occurring on Yerba Buena Island. You can imagine that Yerba Buena Island was larger at one point in time, and as sea levels came up, there was wave erosion and periodic failures, landslides, that you can see that came out of this big cavity and out of these hollows and deposited on the bay floor. And so the island was built by dredging, by pump dredging the sand that was all around here onto the shoal that existed uh, because there was a a big sand deposit here. Um, And so that was a good sort of foundation to build the island on. So how did they do that? Um, They placed a series of dikes, they would put a dike on the the floor, whether that was the natural bay floor or the the bay floor that existed because of this deposition that occurred over the last 10,000 years or so. And then they would pump the sand behind it till they got to the top of that dike and put another dike on top of it and then put another stage of fill etc until they uh, achieved the elevation that Dillick was actually talking about about 13 or 14 feet above sea level then they armored it with this rock this is an actual exhibit by the way from 1936 Um, and excuse me it should be noted that in 1987 Two years before Loma Prieta, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers placed another layer of rock, which is what we see out there now, on top of this. It was larger rock. And indeed during Loma Prieta, when we experienced liquefaction, that rock was very helpful in sort of containing the island and not having any flows into the bay. So here are some exhibits of the construction Here's one of these dikes and they, these pump dredges are just uh, pumping it from the, from the bay floor and depositing it here. Uh, and here you can see by April of uh, 1937, it's really taking shape. They're still building the island here on the north side, but you can see that there are already some buildings being built, two hangars uh, on the south side. All right, and before we began the work out there before we uh you know started this is what it looked like uh and uh much of what we'll be talking about uh is related to the work that's been done to date in the first stage which this should this should give us a perspective as to uh the size of the first stage relative to the whole island and relative to the development footprint So the soils that exist underneath the island, um, uh, the the stratigraphy is very complex. The layering of the soil is very complex. uh, And there's been exhaustive work to uh, identify very precisely as to elevation and soil type, et cetera. Um, One thing to note on this exhibit is if you can see this red line here, That was the elevation of the bay floor before this yellow stuff was added. The yellow stuff is the fill, the dredged fill. So the the bay floor was here, but because of the addition of that weight, the weight of the fill, it squeezed all this gray stuff such that the old surface went from this red line to about right there. So for the purpose of this presentation, we very, very uh, sort of oversimplified all this uh, to think of the uh, layers of Treasure Island as falling into three categories. Uh, We have the fill that was placed on on top of the shoal. So we've combined those into one thing we have, we have this layer, which we call young bay mud. That's the natural bay deposit that's, that's everywhere around the bay. The entire bay uh, has this bay mud that's been deposited over recent geologic time, say less than 50,000 years. And then beneath that, we have a very stiff clay uh, that is capable of taking structure loads, et cetera. So this is, this layer is not compressible. This is very compressible. This is liquefiable. Now, what's the difference? This upper material will densify in response to dynamic energy. So like an earthquake. Uh, But it won't densify in response to static loads. We could pile up a whole bunch of dirt here and nothing would happen to this. It really takes dynamic energy to rearrange the sand particles uh, to get it to densify. This layer is just the opposite. Uh, You can shake it all you want and it won't densify. But if we add any new loads, it'll squeeze the water out of it and it'll squish down. Technical term. So that's why we saw in the previous exhibit that this, this line went down as a result of adding the weight of this fill. And for the first stage of development, about half of this upper layer is the dredged fill and about the lower half, give or take, is the natural shoal deposit, but they're both sandy. So, so what's the cure for this? Well, we developed a program to densify this through dynamic energy, which we'll go into. And uh, and we've developed uh, as part of that program a means by which to densify or consolidate this uh, through static loading. Uh, So uh, the situation before we started any work was that uh, most of the settlement on the right side which is the Yerba Buena side had run its course but at the north end where the bay mud is much thicker up to maybe 120 feet thick uh, it was still settling uh you know 80 85 years after the original construction a little bit at a slow rate okay so the objectives of our program are to densify the sandy fill to make it basically liquefaction proof meaning earthquake proof right to pre-compress the compressible layer underneath the young bay mud so that when we add the fill, like Bill said, we're elevating the island uh, to to guard against sea level rise. So we're going to be adding weight. We're going to be and so we're going to pre-compress it so that we will no longer have subsidence out there uh, at Treasure Island. we mentioned this we're going to elevate grades and we need to strengthen the shoreline so that in an earthquake it doesn't uh, laterally deform into the bay all right why is this not coming up sorry okay that's the slide that that was meant to be (laughs) sorry about that um so here's sort of a graphical depiction of the program. So everything in this light yellow color is uh, gets densified through dynamic energy, which we'll go into. Everything that's cross-hatched will also be surcharged, that is a temporary static load to squeeze the water out of that compressible layer and pre-compress it. And then along the shoreline we have a very robust strengthening program to protect the edge where we have proposed improvement near the edge such as the ferry terminal uh the marina and there is a site here where we have uh, proposed building right uh closer to the edge than the rest of the development so this you might imagine um, an awful lot of thought and an awful lot of collaboration went into this. We initially convened a blue ribbon panel in 2007 to sort of validate all the concepts that, uh, that had been proposed. Uh, and then during the very long uh, uh, study period and design process, there were many, many co- collaborators Uh, And of course, many public agencies reviewed uh, and ultimately permitted and, and blessed the program. Let me try to go back to the, yeah, okay. So the sequence of our ground improvement program is that first we install what we call WICs into the ground. That's just sort of a generic name I think a better name would be straws into the ground, but neither is exactly right. It's like a straw that has holes in it and it's wrapped by a filter fabric and it goes into the ground and its only purpose is to facilitate the escape of the water as we try to squeeze the water out of that compressible clay. It doesn't provide any long-term benefit. It just speeds the process because as we discussed at the north end, we're 80, 85 years down the road and still settling a little bit. We don't wanna wait decades. So to speed it up, we put in these wicks. Then we do what we call vibro-compaction. We'll get into that a little bit. And that is to densify the upper material, the fill that was placed so that it won't liquefy in an earthquake then we place the static load on it uh, and let it sit there for a while and monitor that and finally we have the edge treatment deep soil mixing to harden the edge and uh, prevent it from receding back or failing in case of a a seismic event so here are a few uh, photos from the island this is this is the wick uh, rig, It pushes these wigs as deep as 150 feet into the ground to the bottom of that young bay mud. Uh, then we follow with this program which is this uh, very heavy vibratory head uh, that, that vibrates these four columns uh, and also displaces the sand. Uh, so you can see here in this cartoon Makeup sand is placed in there because it creates these depressions. Uh, to, to validate and sort of calibrate that process for the island, we had to develop a method specification. So in 2015 and 16, uh, we mobilized this uh, proprietary uh, advanced technology from Japan, where they had had experience with it, very good experience with it for many years but we really needed to validate it. So we chose a test site to perform a full-scale series of tests. Um, The test site included four quadrants and uh, we installed many, many instruments in uh, in, in these areas and we applied different amounts of energy in that vibratory system to fine-tune the process, and to gauge the results. Uh, this is an area, this is the test area, that, and you can see here's the, here's the vibratory process, which again is, a, is displacement and densification. It's hard to get a sense of the scale here, but this piece of equipment here is a large excavator, and so you can get a sense of it a little bit. Here is the production. This was as of, I think the winter of uh, 1819, I believe. Um, And uh, we were just going along and doing this, uh, this improvement over vast areas. Uh, Just to give you a sense uh, that we had 50,000 of these probe elements just in phase one. And as far as the wicks are concerned, we have seven million linear feet of the wicks. So if you put them end to end, they would reach, you know, almost halfway across the country. Um, and then we followed up with the tamper. Um, in sixteen thousand of these locations, we followed up with the tamper because the vibratory process leaves the surface loose. Uh, so we had to prepare the surface to receive the new fill. Uh, you might note here that by the time we were finished with this process, the elevation of the ground had dropped significantly. It was up here when we started, and now we're down here, um, which was expected. Um, all right. Then we surcharged. So you can see here, these two large temporary fills uh, that uh, again, we monitor with extensive instrumentation, all sorts of different types of instruments to to monitor, but also to determine the efficacy uh, of of the settlement relative to the predictions. As it turns out, the predictions were were spot on because of all the different, all of the very involved analysis we did for years before that. The predictive models were very accurate, um, and so these surcharge fills would sit for uh, an amount of time necessary to achieve the settlement targets, um, and uh, and. Again, we then move the move these we, we remove that material. Down to wherever we want the finish elevation of the island to be. So you can imagine when we place these fills. They start out at a diff, at a certain elevation then they settle down. And then we remove the upper portion and leave behind the elevation we want. All right, and the last step uh is this deep soil mixing this is again to protect the edge this particular photo is on the causeway so the causeway got special treatment as you can imagine it's the ingress and ingress point for the island and also a major utility corridor so we did the deep soil mixing and the vibro compaction extensively on the causeway uh, so this particular Machine has four augers that are each five feet in diameter. And it literally mixes cement with the soil down to a depth of as much as 90 feet to give us that edge protection that we need. Uh, It mixes the soil in place. So it's not, we're not removing cylinders of soil. We're just mixing it in place with cement to, to harden it. And uh, that's sort of the end of the major part of the presentation. Um, we can uh, entertain questions or talk about any of the other things that we that uh, have come up.
1: Great thank you this was uh this is really terrific. Um oh, I'm sorry Bob did you say do you have something to add to this? No that, that
5: that's the presentation for now
1: all right wonderful um so uh, uh director Richardson has some questions
3: yes thank you Mr. Elihu again uh we should make it a point to invite you regularly and at some point uh, these topics are so important that I think we're going to have to let um this kind of education process um be so that everyone in San Francisco can be surprised so My specific questions, um, in the last uh, presentation by Mr. Trevedi, he actually mentioned that Treasure Island um, development sea level rise is a model uh, for the entire country, and that is very significant. And then in your presentation, you went through this lengthy process as to the state-of-the-art technology that are not even used anywhere in the country, in the world, and you outline the uh sandpill densification, the tamping, the surcharge, the deep soil. And then you hear about the community concerns about um what's gonna happen. So how do you uh in just your presentation here again, how safe is the development of uh, Treasure Island? Again, I've been reading all the data, but Hearing from you and the experts, I think um, it's also very helpful. So if you could just um answer those questions.
4: Yes, thank you for the question. And uh the the standards here are the, the highest standards that uh that are promulgated today with regard to seismic safety and stability. Uh There's a new building code that went into effect uh, January 1 of 2020, which uh, uh, among other things, uh, increased the uh, seismic demand on new construction. And this meets all of those standards. And so uh, I would say board member Richardson in regard to your question earlier about how this compares, say, to the Embarcadero, uh, there's essentially no comparison. Um, the the Embarcadero, as Dilip said, was built a long, long time ago, and so similar to Treasure Island, it has uh, fill. It has uh, fill that was placed on top of the bay floor, but these. Techniques and safeguards were not put in place that they didn't know about it back then. Uh, and so it is much more seismically uh, susceptible than Treasure Island. Uh, Treasure Island is, is, uh, it is built to the, to the very highest standards that exist today uh, in, terms of, in terms of building codes and regulatory requirements. The work that's been done here, the work that's been done here to stabilize the island and to analyze it, uh, as you can imagine, I'd love to talk about this. I could talk for much longer than than anyone is interested, but it's been published and it's well-recognized uh, internationally.
3: Thank you, sir.
6: Okay,
4: thank you.
1: All right, Faye, uh, please go ahead.
6: Yes, I, I actually don't have any questions, but I have praise. And thank you, uh, Mr. Elahu, for making it so clear, especially to lay people like us. Um, it was a very, very clear presentation. And um, it gives us insight on all the different things that have been going on geotechnically with the island. So thank you very much.
4: Thank you very much. Uh, if I may, I, I'll make one more point. Um, in terms of resilience and in terms of sort of long-term operations, there's a very, very robust data set. Can everyone see my screen now? Yes. So this this green area is where we install, for example, the wick drains. This is just the wick drain layer on our GIS. Right, right is, now
5: your PowerPoint is still up. Oh.
4: Uh, uh, okay, sorry. Uh, let's see. If I close the PowerPoint, uh, can you see that?
1: Uh, no. I I think um, you have to
5: stop sharing the PowerPoint and then and then share the new document. Okay. There you go.
4: Okay, great. Sorry about that. So very quickly. It's I think valuable to note that uh, all of these all of these activities are extremely well uh recorded and documented um and there's a living database that the tida has access to uh this green area is where the wick drains were it's really not a solid green area it's made up of hundreds of thousands of these dots and every dot if we click on any dot what we have is information on that particular wick. Um, Lots of data on every one of these dots. Uh, Each one represents a wick that went into the ground. And there are 7 million feet of these wicks. Uh, And you can see all of the various uh, attributes of each wick. And so uh, this is something that, will be kind of a living record for for the future Um, so that we know we know where everything is and we know a lot about everything and similar to the wicks you know we have one for the for the uh vibro compaction so it's the same sort of thing we can go in here we can click on any one of these and we can learn a lot about when it was done and uh you know, many pieces of information uh, about it. Uh, uh, And lastly, just to get give a sense of the uh, deep soil mixing, which is again, that which hardens the edge and gives us protection against sea level rise and wave action. Uh, Let me turn off this layer and go to the, this one. So we've, um, we have multiple methods of stabilizing the edge. The most common was the deep saw mixing, but in some areas where there was no room to do that, we did uh, resort to some structural solutions. Uh sorry this is taking a bit to come up. Um you can see we're nearly complete now. We're 98% complete with that work. Um and sorry it's taking so long. But if we want to know where each of these is, all of these green panels, these are like shear walls that are buried in the ground to Give rigidity to the edge uh, and uh, stabilize it uh, from lateral movement. And with that, I'll stop sharing and stop talking.
3: (laughs) This is great. Very cool.
1: Thank you. I think uh, Commissioner Prochnik had a question.
8: Hi, nice to meet you, I'm coming in late, so sorry about this, but I, this is so impressive and it's, it's so exciting to, to see all the great work you've done. And I, if you could have done something different or if there was the money that could have allowed you to do something with new technologies, out of curiosity, what would have been?
4: Oh my goodness, that's a great question. I, I, I think in terms of the methods applied, I don't think we would have done anything different. Um, now in terms of sequencing and in terms of um sort of preparation for uh unknowns we did have some delays that related to our inability to uh uh, install the the deep soil mixing i hate to do this to you but i'm going to pull it up again um so these are deep soil mix columns and As I said, there are like 10,000 of them. But you see where they're red here? It's because when we drilled down there, when the contractor did, um, we hit that old dike that we talked about in the very, very beginning. And it was very difficult. And in some cases, just couldn't get through it. And so we had to sort of uh, quickly design and implement a structural solution, which is much, much more costly uh, to, to take the place of the of the deep soil mixing that didn't quite get to the design depth. Uh, and so I, I think that we lost a lot of time in that. We, we probably would have been better off having some designs in our back pocket uh, and anticipate that there's really nothing you can do about it. It's just what it is. But if we had anticipated it, we could have been, you know, sort of Johnny on the spot and and implemented that. Um, I can't think of anything else. I'll tell you that, you know, we when we mobilized the the rig from Japan to do the test area we learned an awful lot. That's one thing we would do again and again and again on every project. Um, uh, In terms of which layers were truly liquefiable and which ones weren't, and what amount of energy was optimal for densifying the sand. And that test area was, it was a godsend. We had, you know, we had the luxury of, you know, thanks to TIDA and the, the project developer an area was carved out for us. And we had sort of free reign to do what we wanted. And we, we being able to do a full scale test like that is is just, it, it's just invaluable.
6: Thank you. All
1: right, thank you for that question, Director <laughs> Uh Any other questions from this body?
6: I, I would just like, um, uh, Mr. Elihoe, for you to um, maybe summarize for us um, without these geotechnical improvements, um, without any improvements to the island, um, in fact, the island would be far worse uh, in, in being exposed to liquefaction and other, uh, other events, geotechnical events.
4: Yeah, very much so. So that there are two, there are two distinct issues. There are two distinct geotechnical concerns here, both of which would, would, um, have been, uh, have resulted had they not been mitigated, would have resulted in, uh, unacceptable performance. One is, as you mentioned, the, the liquefaction. So that's a seismic safety issue, not a static issue. And so when, when the big one comes, which it will, that fill layer uh, would have liquefied. And uh, it's just like the term sounds, it, ter- it turns into effectively into a liquid and it would have potentially flowed latter- laterally into the bay. So the improvement with the, the, the vibration and the displacement is to uh, is to eliminate that concern. The second concern is when we plan for sea level rise, as Bill had mentioned, we we have to elevate the the island a bit more so as we move northward, um, and that adds weight to the island and would induce a new round of settlement in that compressible layer that's under the liquefiable layer. And that would be uh, an unacceptable result. That's not a seismic uh, phenomenon. That would be just static settlement. Everything we would build, all the surface improvements would settle. Now, of course, you could put every building on piles and the buildings wouldn't settle. But the plazas, the utilities, uh, the park facilities would settle. So, so with all of, you know, with, with, so this was a comprehensive mitigation program to address both of those concerns, a related concern is the lateral stability of the shoreline. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it would only really be triggered in a seismic event. Uh, so that's, that's yet sort of a third, uh, concern that we had to mitigate.
6: Thank you. Thank you for that. summary.
1: Terrific. Thank you. Is there anyone else?
3: No, thank you, Mr. Elliott. We need to bring you back again. <laughs> thank you. Well, uh,
4: thank you, board member. And and I have to say, you know, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate the kind words, but I just get to be the mouthpiece. There's a whole team behind me that did all the real work. And, uh, we're you know they're very very passionate about this project and i wish they could all be here
6: yeah well Hopefully. we're glad to hear that we're passionate too and um you've certainly made a great um presentation which is clearly understandable thank you again
1: thank you and please please give our thanks to your team on, on our behalf um thank you very much for this um, okay. so with that um Okay, hey, do we have any public comment?
0: Yes, we have two callers in the queue and I can open the line.
1: Thank you. Um, welcome uh, caller, please go ahead. You have two minutes. My name,
5: okay, my name is James Pepper and I'm looking at a 1994 U.S. geological survey called Deep Instrumentation, Instrumentation Array at the Treasure Island Naval Station It shows that the lateral uh, stress was six times that of, of, because of the sand at Treasure Island, the effect of the earthquake was six times that of other areas in the Bay Area. And I hope you all address that. It's I can give you the name of the overall uh, report is the Loma Prieta, California earthquake of October 17, 1989, strong ground motion and ground failure report. And uh, the other thing is, when you were pounding away on the causeway, did you all file a, a permission to do that with the Fish and Wildlife and the Marine Mammal Commission? Because that is the area where the seals feed.
4: Sure, Uh, may I address the questions, uh, Mr. Chair?
1: Uh, Yeah, please.
4: So with regard to the first comment, uh, yes, there's a USGS seismic array on the island that's uh, on the, that's north of this stage one area and sort of towards the west edge of the island. And it recorded uh, ground motions during Loma Prieta and other uh, less significant earthquakes. And the, the seismic response, that is the lateral acceleration that occurred at the surface of Treasure Island was significantly greater than it was on Yerba Buena Island because of the amplification that occurs through the soil profile from the bedrock. To put it in perspective, uh, the, the peak, Ground acceleration that was recorded was, if I recall correctly, on the order of 0.12 g. Uh, that is 0.12 times the acceleration of gravity. It's in that range. Um, uh, and uh, the design that we designed to is four times that. It's about 0.46 g because we're designing for a much higher intensity event. We're sitting between the Hayward and San Andreas faults, and so uh, we're way beyond measured uh, measured ground motions in the Bay Area. Uh, as to the second question about the causeway, uh, we we said in the beginning that 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 sand needed to be densified with dynamic energy. There are two ways to do that one is impact which I think is what the caller is referring to and the other is vibration we chose vibration and not impact Uh, and uh, a significant part of the reasoning was was just what was stated we we really didn't want to have uh effects that would go beyond the prism of soil uh that was being improved and uh and to put that in perspective, the efficacy of that system uh, is only about uh, six feet uh, away from the vibratory columns that we saw in the presentation. So it dissipates very quickly. It only, it only improves the specific area where, where uh, it's applied. Unlike big impact energy Uh, which has waves that propagate much further out.
0: Thank you for that. We have one more caller. I will open the line.
7: Good afternoon again, commissioners and staff. Eric Brooks with our city, San Francisco. Um, So I I respectfully have to take issue with the, the idea that this, this planning is serve, serves as a model for the United States. I think that if that is the case, that's emblematic of the fact that infrastructure planning in the United States has been bad and, and left lacking. <laughs> so and, and I'll use sea level rise, which affects this item as an example. Uh, what I was not able to say in the previous item is that the projections of sea level rise that Bradley Angel raised of seven and a half feet actually are exceeded by those made by former NASA scientist James Hansen, who put together a team that said we could get 5 to 7 meters of sea level rise by 2100. Meters, not feet. And then what that brings to crystallize all this is that in none of the projects at bayview Hunters Point, Treasure Island, or anywhere else in San Francisco Bay Area that I have done comments on the environmental impact reports, have I seen the standard engineering practice for project safety of 100% margin of error beyond worst case scenario used? It's not used in any of them and that's standard practice by engineers. So if we were using 100% margin of error on sea level rise, for example, your standard would be your five feet plus a possible eight feet of inundation from a tsunami, meaning you need to build for 26 feet. Under Bradley Angel's scenario, which is more accurate, 31 feet. And under James Hansen's worst-case scenario, it would be up to 50 to 60 feet. So the fact that in regard to sea level rise, the planning is dramatically inadequate, even by Bradley Angel's standards, uh, which are a safe middle ground, I've got to assume that the the 100% margin of error is not being included in any of these Uh, items on item five either. And the sea level rise that I'm talking about, that level of permanent inundation would change all these assumptions being made by this presentation in item five and dramatically make them change and have to be redone. So a lot more work needs to be on this and that's not even including the toxic and radioactive chemicals that would also-
0: Thank you for your comments. Your two minutes is up. Thank you. And there are no more callers in the queue. Okay.
6: I I think that um, Ike had to leave, unfortunately, for another um, meeting. I think this brings to the end um, this
0: uh, committee meeting. Are there any other items on the agenda, Kate? Yes, just item number six, discussion of future agenda items by directors. Okay. Do the directors have any future agenda items that they would like to bring up?
6: Okay, hearing none. Sorry, Commissioner, oh. this is Julia. I, I I would like to
8: circle back to connecting the work that we're doing on Treasure Island with the requirements of San Francisco County and the state for meeting net energy zero and some of the other um, elements of just doing the matrix crosswalk we've spoken about before.
6: Uh, and uh, Julia, just for me to be clear, um, it's on the energy you wanted to bring up um, the San Francisco County standards on energy. Use. It's not a standard. It's the county standards.
8: It's the count. Sorry, the county use of not just energy, but it's the entire sustainability goals to net energy zero and carbon neutral. Oh,
6: right. Okay. Um, that that could be a future topic. You know yes. how we how we um, compare to the San Francisco uh, requirements uh, or goals for. Net. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Good. Any, Anything else? So hearing none, I think we can adjourn. This was a very informative session. Really appreciate, you know, the two presenters today did a really wonderful job. Thank you so much. Thank,
3: Thank you, Kate. everyone.
6: Thank you.